Before we begin, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love shown in Christ. And even as we consider how you've loved us, help us not to take it for granted. Help us, O oh Lord, to um, allow your love to be motivating us uh, in our service to you and to one another. And Lord, we can only do this with your help. So we ask, O oh Lord, we pray that we will be hearing this with eager hearts, receptive hearts, Lord, um, that we may receive this word rightly. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin by asking, how can we tell if another, if a person truly cares about something? Well, we can look at, for example, Malaysians and food. How do we know that Malaysians care about food? All it takes is for Singapore to lay claim on Chendo or Nasi Lama, and you see Malaysians in the internet comments up in arms defending the rights of Malaysian food, isn't it? What about parents and children? How do you know that the parents are really about their children? Well, their time and their schedule, uh, in many cases, their budgets revolve around the child, doesn't it? Or the same can be said for football fans wearing, displaying their favorite jersey, their, their, their phone backgrounds are of their club. They will begin to talk about um, the club as in the, in the first person plural. They'll say, we, we won. Um, and they will wake up at ungodly hours just to watch a match of their supporting team, isn't it? But in general, the effect is two-way. There's a two-way effect going on. First, we see, we've seen how the object of the love shapes the choices, the priorities, the time, the money, um, and even how we express ourselves on the internet. And for Malaysians, we are actively being shaped by our love for our food. And we have to combat that, isn't it? But the second way, the two-way, the other way it goes, is that our enthusiasm for that object of love serves to invite others who do not know yet, do not know that object of love, to enter in to experience it. What do I mean? So some of my friends who were not in Malaysia, and when all these like um, crispy rendang explosions were going on, or nasi lemak uh, debates going on, they were asking their Malaysian friends, um, "What's this?" Curious, they're curious, like, oh, you're so, you're so agitated about this. What, what, what is it about? What is Malaysian nasi lemak? And of course, my Malaysian friends were like, oh, you have yet to discover the glories of Malaysian food. Come, let me show you. Do you see where I'm going with this? Because in the past few weeks, we've been looking at various core values that we hold to at St. Mary's. We looked at first a passion for reaching the lost, that the gospel is about Christ's death and resurrection, and that people need to know. God as revealed in the gospel. The second week was the continuous growth and maturity in Christ. That as we continue to grow in Christ-likeness, we serve Him for the right reasons and that we continually strive to speak the truth in love. And last week, we've looked at faithful Bible teaching that everything we do, gospel-centered ministry, is based on God's word and that being based on God's word means it points us to Christ so that we live for him. And this week, we'll look at point number four, which is love for each other and those around us. 
and we'll be thinking about how gospel-centered ministry is motivated by our love for others. And I hope for us today to learn that we love because we know God who loved us in Christ to display his love. And as you can follow in the outline provided, um, we'll be following exploring this value from John 1, 4 to 7, chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, in three sections. Section 1, the source of love, verses 7 to 8. Section 2, the demonstration of love, verses 9 to 10. And section 3, the perfection of love, verses 11 to 12. Now before I begin, we just need to know that 1 John is a letter that he wrote to his spiritual children. He wrote it to believers, to churches that he planted. And he was warning them against those who would try to deceive them into darkness, into disobedience, into um, lawlessness. And he was upholding, he was repeatedly exhorting them into love, into obedience and light. And he was emphasizing these three things, love, light and obedience, by weaving these three words all throughout his letter. So there's no point in one John I could go like, this is his own, like, chapter 1 to 2 is about him loving one another, or chapter 3 to 4 is light. No, because it's all throughout. So what ha what's going to happen is that we're talking about love. We're going to look at four chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. But necessarily, I will be drawing out, for example, when John uses a similar phrase, but in a different way. For example, abide, or being perfected in love, or knowing God. And, and in, in, in love or being perfected in love. And he uses it in a different context or uses different phrasing in a different part of the, the, the epistle, the same book that sheds light to what he truly means here. I'll be jumping there. Okay, hopefully we, we can stay on track. All right, having said that, let's go into verse seven. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And I'll be selecting a few phrases in here to be um, explaining. So the first phrase right here, right out of the gate, we have a command to love one another. Of course, this is building upon John's argument earlier in chapter 3 and earlier in the letter. But here we start with an instruction to love one another. We are commanded to love one another as we've read in Leviticus 19. There are some examples on how one should love their neighbor. I mean, love one another. Um, not oppress their neighbor, not rob them. Um, no injustice to the poor, indifference to the rich. Um, no slander. Do not hate your brother. Do not take vengeance or bear any grudges against your brother. And what do we take away from the whole list? It's that famous second greatest commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And here, love your neighbor as yourself, the, the care and attention to one's self for survival is assumed. Okay? So as much as um, people typically um, take to, 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 to ensure their own um, comfort. And that's what we see in the world today, isn't it? It's all about my rights. It's all about my needs. It's all about, like, this is mine. It means it's mine. I don't get, I, I don't need to share it. I'm not entitled to share it with anyone. It's mine. I work hard for it. And, and the Bible saying that natural inclination to say mine, 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 the Bible says, turn it to your neighbor. And of course, like the parable of the Good Samaritan would inform us, who is our neighbor? 
And very briefly, it's everyone who bears the image of God. All human beings are our neighbour. Love is other person focused. That when you love one another, what you mean is that what you have is given to you by God for you to love the other person rather than gratify yourself. Okay? Next we come. That why should we love in that way? Why should we love in such a self-sacrificial way? Because love is from God and God is love. God is the source of love and the definition of love. So the mistake made by the world today by saying phrases like love wins or that love is love, they try to make love ultimate as if any expression of love is legitimate. But as we've just seen, Selfish, self-centered, self-entitled kind of love is not biblical love. So too is any love that does not flow from the truth of God in His Word. That such love that does not flow from God's truth cannot rightly be understood as being from God. So we allow God to define what love is. God is the definition of love. So how do we do that? We see that love is a key attribute of God. And that if we allow God to define love, it means that we do not define, understand love separate from God's other characteristics, his holiness, his righteousness, and his mercy, and so on and so forth. That we do not understand God's love separate from that. Rightly understanding love as an attribute of God means that God's influence, as we begin to, to receive this, it naturally results in love's love for others, which leads to John talking about our love as others as evidence that we have been born of God and know God. And that's what we'll be looking to next. So being born of God means having his life, having his characteristics, and of course, inescapably, having his love, being God's children. Just like how biological children share in their parents' biology, so too um, does the branch share in the vine. Being God's children, take, we, we naturally take on, being God's spiritual children, we spiritually take on God's attributes of love. Now, there must be, there might be some misunderstanding here when John says, whoever loves is born of God because some may take it out of context to say that as long as someone's expressing love they are born of God therefore we cannot invalidate their expression of love but remember John was writing to Christians he was already assumed his audience already assumed their churches that he has planted that have believed in the gospel so when he says whoever loves John is actually saying any Christian who loves proves that they're truly regenerate. They've truly believed and received the gospel, that the gospel is really at work in their hearts. And we see this, that um, this spiritual birth is also related to knowing God. So what does it mean to truly know someone? It means to have a genuine relationship with someone. And to use our human relationships as a starting point to understanding what it means to have a loving relationship with God, 
well, how do we how do we start and develop relationships with fellow human beings? The kind of friendships or relationships that carry you through life's troubles. That if you're in trouble, that they are the first person you turn to. That you would trust this other person with your life. How do we get to that levels of trust? And the simple answer is, you've had common experiences. You've shared uh, time together, quality time together. You've gotten to know each one another and you've trusted one another. And the same is for God then, that we build relationships with God by spending time with Him, listening to Him through His Word, speaking to Him, conversing with Him through prayer, and spending quality time with Him, having shared experiences by by praying, by allowing God into our everyday lives. I, uh, sometimes it can be as small as praying for a car park, praying for small things, turning to God from things big and small and making a habit out of it so that whether the prayer is answered or not, it becomes a shared experience that we build with God. So we love because we know God who loved us in Christ to display His love. So the first principle here is that we love because we know God. So if we truly claim to know God, to walk in Him, to, as a smack, we, we pride ourselves on being gospel-centered, on being word-based, on truly having the truth. If we truly do know these things and hold to these things, then John, one in, in this letter, he's saying, you will love your brothers and sisters because if you love God, you will love that which he loves most. If anyone says, in, in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Sorry. Chapter 4, verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And reading on in verse 21, chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So how can we be loving one another? I think it begins with a show of care, of concern with one another by being more aware of uh, who's around us in church. And definitely, if you're available, one of the avenues that we um, we hope and, and we offer to our members to be in a community that loves one another, that expresses that love for one another outside of Sunday is our growth groups um, that meet outside of Sunday. And that, that's where um, the life-on-life life Christian walk with one another, loving one another, all the one another's should be happening as we're being shaped by God's word together. There is no way that we can grow as a Christian alone, or rather that is a poor way to be growing as a Christian, that we're meant to be growing together. And I'll be drawing more on this point later. But before we go there, let's turn next to the next verse in verse 9. In how did God demonstrate his love. 
So we read in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as propitiation for our sins. So, what's the first way we see that he manifested his love among us? Number one, that he sent his son, his only son, into our world. That God sacrificially gave his one and only son. That there was no way for us to know God. The God who created the universe is far beyond our ability to know. And that should be logical, isn't it? There's no way that us puny human beings who are limited by time and space to comprehend or even begin to know an infinite being beyond space and time. It just breaks our categories. So there's no way for us to, on our own, begin to even truly know him, except that he revealed himself among us. And that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, isn't it? In many times and long ago, God spoke to many ways through the prophets, and many times and many ways through the prophets, and that in these last days, He's spoken through His Son, that God entered into our world so that we can know Him, that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, in His sinless obedience, perfectly displayed God's love for everyone to see. That if you would wonder, how will God's love react to someone whose life has been defined by sin, but just decides to turn around and repent and come to Him? Look no further than Jesus receiving the tax collector and the prostitute who repent and turn to Him. If you want to see what, how does God's love react to injustice, to an abuse of authority, look no further than Jesus anger, indignation towards his, the religious hypocrites of his day. And last but not least, what extent will God's love go to save us? We look no further than the cross that Jesus suffered, even though he was innocent, that he suffered the cruel execution of the worst kind of criminal for our sakes, for our sin so that we might live through him. And this phrase, that we might live through him, means that if we're living through Christ, before Christ, we were not living, we were not alive, we were dead. Brothers and sisters, we were dead because of our sin. And that it's only by being united that our lives, our sin, that, that the lives that we live, dead with sin, being united, through faith to the cross that the cross covers and pays for all that, the, that, that sin, the punishment. And that being united to Christ through faith, that when he rises again, we truly live through him because we gain his resurrection life. That we have hope to be with him and appear with him in glory and not just in a future day, but in today as we live and breathe if we've been united with Christ we too have the resurrection power to be able to love as God loves through his spirit 
And that importantly, we see again that this love is not that we loved him or that we deserve that we're so great that God couldn't do without us. No, we were pitiful, miserable in our sin with no ability to save ourselves. So when John says, love, not that we loved him, we were his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God mercifully made that first move when we were undeserving. And that when we were still his enemies, when we did not love him at all, when we had no interest in him, he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And let me explain that word for a bit. Because it's an archaic, archaic word we don't use in everyday language anymore. But the Bible keeps it, keeps this word propitiation because there is not a word in the English language that retains this meaning. And with our current languages um, or cultures, the emphasis on wrath, I don't expect to see it come anytime soon. You see, the word propitiation very specifically means the satisfaction or turning away of wrath, of anger. And that this truly is understood as a result of love. That, pro that if there was no wrath, no propitiation is needed. If there was no offense, no propitiation is needed. So that God sent his son as a propitiation for our sins, it means to us very importantly that God's love does not neglect the consequences and the ugliness, the destructiveness of sin. And make no mistake, sin is destructive because it corrupts God's good creation. It perverts that which was meant for good into something that's filthy and degrading. That what was once wholesome and, and, and um, meant for good becomes, because it's hijacked become, by sin, becomes horrifying. Like, so an example that comes to mind. So when my children have regulated screen time, um, we turn on an app like YouTube Kids that has a lot of wholesome videos on it. Um, supposedly curated content, YouTube Kids, right? Only selected creators are allowed. But because it is the, the content is added not by people, but by an algorithm, there are certain bad actors out there um, who would disguise a children's program. Okay? It, the more popular, the more likely this happens. And they would make create videos that look and sound like the title and, and what's on sound exactly like a children's video. But a few seconds in or a minute in, they suddenly switches to display graphic violence and adult content that has no place for children's eyes. Who would do such a thing? Why, why would they want to even do that? Right? And that's sin, isn't it? It's senseless. And the thing is, we should be happy that God hates sin. He hates evil. He desires to destroy and once for all, remove all sorts of such evil and corruption. And that's God's good desire. That's God's love for us. Because He sees sin corrupting, killing us, destroying us, and he, his, wrath, his wrath burns rightfully. Our problem is that we, 
in the perpetuating, in, in the propagation of our own sin, we land ourselves firmly in the crosshairs of his wrath. As we begin to spread the corruption and destruction of sin amongst those who love us, or those we should be loving, but rather we turn to love ourselves, we become targets ourselves of God's wrath. And that's why it's so beautiful when God said that he sent his son as a propitiation for our sin in that as we have meditated maybe five, six weeks ago on, on Easter on the, the extent of the horrors of the cross on Good Friday, the extent that the cross was horrible and hard to bear, that is the extent that God is wrathful against sin. But that the cross sufficiently covers our sin so that we can be reconciled. Once propitiation, once propitiated, that we are allowed to reconcile, that we no longer face a God of wrath, his wrath has been fully turned away, and that we can be finally reconciled to God. So we love because we know God who loved us in Christ to display his love. And the second principle is that we love because God loved us in Christ. So how does God's love for, Christ, for us in Christ um, influence our love for one another? So based on the three words I said just now, sacrificial, merciful, and reconciliatory. Number one, sacrificial. So we've spoken about how we have been commanded to love our neighbor. That all that we've been given is been given by God for us to be loving other people. So I'm not just talking in terms of material needs, isn't it? Um, where you find yourself in life among the people that you know, your friends and your family, there's no coincidence. God placed you there to love them. Your time and your uh, availability are there to be used to love others as well. And as we've spoken about how God has sacrificially loved us in Christ, that too has a pattern for us to be sacrificially loving one another. And that we do so, that as we do so, we have a another shared experience with God that unites us with God. It doesn't it? That, oh, God, it's so difficult to love this other person. And the, the, it should, the reflection should rebound back to us to say that, and just in that way, God, I was so unloving as well, and yet you love me. So that's sacrificial. The next is merciful, that just as God in Christ made the first move to love us who were not deserving, that even while we were still hostile towards him, that he extended that love. Who are people whom we may need to be showing mercy to? That the Christian response to offences and to arguments is not like what the typical world's responses, responses is, isn't it? That sometimes when we get offended by other people, we'll go, you know, I'll pull my ass. They did wrong. And until they apologize, I won't move an inch. Like a prize at stake or something like that. Like, they should know better. They should know what they've done wrong. But here's the thing, right? If God loved us that way, we'll be in serious trouble. (laughs) 
if God loved us in that way, we'd be in serious trouble. So we don't. Now, I'm not saying that at times when we have been hurt by other brothers and sisters, it doesn't hurt. That in asking, um, in, in telling you to be merciful to someone who doesn't deserve it, that you are dismissing the offense. Far from it, okay? Um, that forgiving one another is about the possibility of reconciliation, and that's the goal. That just as Christ's death on the cross, that God's display of love ultimately was to reconcile us back to God. Ideally, in the perfect world, it should always the, the goal should always be reconciliation, a restored relationship um, that glorifies God far more than um, it doesn't. However, we don't live in a perfect world, and that's what we need to acknowledge. So sometimes forgiveness towards another person means that you don't hold the offense to the other person. That you don't bear that grudge. Remember Leviticus 19, you don't hold a grudge, you don't take vengeance, you don't take revenge. You don't be standoffish, you don't be passive-aggressive and, and just hold on to yourself. But where possible, offer that olive branch. Have that thing. Are you willing to talk about this? Like This is what you've done? Um, this is where I've been, you know, offense has happened? And should we talk about it? And if the other person accepts, reconciliation can happen. But if the other person brushes you off because of their own, that God has yet to work in their lives on that, then you've done your part. What's more important is to not be holding on to that um, that unforgiveness, that's that sin of unforgiveness, which um, the Bible would just describe as that root of bitterness in Hebrews 12 verse 15. To not allow the root of bitterness to take root in your own heart. Now, having said that, let's move on to the profession of love, all right? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, no one has seen God. But if we've just read that God manifested his love to us in Jesus, and we know that Jesus is God, John definitely says that, doesn't he, in his gospel. So what is John saying here when no, he's saying no one has seen God? What he's truly saying is that... Um, He's referring to how God has chosen to reveal himself among us. That the nominative way for God to reveal himself to his people is not being tangibly, physically present all the time. God revealed himself in the words of scripture. He's revealed himself um, in the person of Jesus. But don't forget, last but not least, he is perfectly revealed in our love for one another. So one way I've heard it expressed is that you and I may be the only Jesus that some people ever see. So turning that around, just think about it. What does the unbelieving world see when it looks at us? Does it see a display of God's sacrificial love? Does it see God's holy love 
that reveals the ugliness and the disgustingness of sin? Does it see God's love that's so powerful unto forgiveness and reconciliation? And John says that if we love one another, not only will they see that, but they will know that God abides in us. That abides here is the same word that John used repeatedly in John chapter 15 to remain in the mind, to remain in his love, to remain in his word and his words remain in you. And that in other parts in chapter 3, John says, uh, in 1 John chapter 3 verse 24, he says, whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And John is not suddenly changing his mind here that one minute you say you love, then you abide in God, then God abides in you. And this one you say, obey your commands, obey God's commands, and then you abide in God. But if you look at verse 23, he says, Jesus' command is to love one another. So to obey the command is to love one another. So love is about obeying a command given by God. Um, but it's also a means of remaining in God, of abiding in God, and God abiding in us through our love. But interestingly, in another way, in, chap- in also chapter 3, earlier in chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, he says, um, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. If anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So we see that God's love abiding in us is the extent that which we truly display, display God's love. And as God's love was sacrificial, was other person focused, it's incomprehensible to, 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 for anyone to have what John chapter 3 verse 17 says, having the world's goods, having the means, and knowing of a need, and closing your heart against him. It's incongruous to think that God's love abides in that act of selfishness. Right? And if we do so, if we truly do love in that way, our love, his love, if we abide in his love, his love is perfected in us. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we will love perfectly or that our love could ever be perfect. That's not what it means at all. But rather, perfected here uh, in, in the Greek means to be completed or to accomplish his goal or to reach a destination, to be completed. So in other words, in 1 John, he describes God's love that God's love is perfected in, um, in other parts. In, in 1 John, he says, keeping God's word. That's how God's love is perfected in chapter 2, verse 5. And that if we abide in God's love in chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, if whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him, and by this, love is perfected in us. So that our love for each other, as much as it's obeying God's word to be loving one another, now has an added purpose, which is to perfect his love. That God's love has been brought to its intended goal and its fullest form when we have when we love one another. That it is true, broken, flawed human beings like you and I, loving one another through God's love, 
that God's love finds its fullest fulfillment on earth. And this is quite mind-blowing, isn't it? John is saying that God's love for us reaches its intended goal when we are expressing that love to other people and, and, and completing the reciprocity between God and his people, that pointing people to God and they love him in return. That's what our love is meant to do. So our last principle here is that we love to display God's love. So earlier on, I began with the second way that our object of love shapes our choices. Um, that the, the, the other way that it flows back is that our enthusiasm for that object of love serves to invite others who do not yet know, invite them in, bring them in. So if God is the object of our love, and our choices and how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we prioritize uh, who we love as an expression of our love for God, then too, our um, enthusiasm for God, for God and His love and, his, and our love for one another should be there to draw people in. Now, how does that work out in, in, in the whole idea of gospel-centered ministry? I would argue that today's topic should not be viewed separately from all the other five, all, all the five, right? All the other four. That a passion for reaching the lost needs to be done out of love. That we are not content with just blasting on the loudspeaker um, two ways to live, as great as that material and resource is, but rather we have a love for those who are yet to know Christ, that we we come alongside them and share the gospel to them or invite them to Christianity Explored or Hope Explored. But that's our passion for reaching the lost that comes out of love for God. That God deserves to be known, therefore we, we make Him known. And um, for continuous growth to maturity in Christ, one of the main areas to be continually growing is that love, the love for Christ and that love for others, isn't it? And that last week, we've seen how faithful Bible teaching is in itself futile. If reading the Bible does not stir our hearts or stir our love for Christ and for others. And in so much, this love, as I've just described, does not come from us, but it comes from God. Next week, we'll be exploring how we need to be relying on God in prayer. So my hope for us at St. Mary's is that we will be known for our love for one another, which demonstrates the beauty of God's love for the lost. That when lost, weary, and restless souls that have been tossed around by the world, by career, by, by money, by things that just don't satisfy, when they finally come into contact with us and, and they experience and they see that the, the beauty of God's love, that without knowing, they were hungering and thirsting for it, that, 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 that they see that, that they experience the amazing life-giving power of God's redeeming love in Christ, that these people would grow more and more in love with this holy, sacrificial, merciful, and reconciliatory God as revealed in Christ and as revealed in our love. Let us pray. Father, in many ways, um, loving in this way 
in the way that you've called us to do is uh, impossible without you. So help us. Maybe some of us, oh Lord, may be hearing this sermon thinking, so-and-so needs to hear this. So I hope the other person is listening or I will send a recording later. But Father, help us to be impacted first. Help us to be um, faithful, to have the boldness to be um, to to allow your word to be um, pricking our own consciousness, uh, our own consciences first, to reveal in our lives where we have failed to love as you love. Father, help us to have wisdom in how to do so. Help us along to be reaching out uh, and being merciful. And help us alone to, um, if possible, not to be uh, neglecting any who may be needing love. And likewise, Lord, if any of us need uh, love, help us also to be able to make the first move to be um, opening up and reaching out. Father, um, that dream for Samaria is to be that place of that will display your love in your truth. I pray that it will not be just that we speak your truth in love, but that we'll truly live out your truth and display it in love. We ask that you be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.